0: contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Well hello and welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute and today we are speaking to Stephen Loosley who is a former Labor senator and currently a senior fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and the US Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. During the Hawke and Keating government, Stephen chaired the Joint Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade, and currently he is Deputy Chairman of Dallas, Australia. Welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast, Stephen.
1: It's a pleasure, Georgina. Good to be with you.
0: And, and Stephen, today we are continuing on our theme on... ANZUS, with the 70th anniversary of the ANZUS Security Pact between Australia, the United States and New Zealand, to be celebrated on the 1st of September. And with all your deep experiences in foreign affairs and defence, but particularly the the alliance and the relationship between Australia and the United States, you've, you've been such a key feature of your career I really was interested to get your insights into, into ANZUS. And um, one of the, the debates about ANZUS, of course, is the foundation story. There's lots of conjecture of whether it was Percy Spender, the External Affairs Minister under Menzies, who then became Australia's ambassador to the United States. Was he the, the, the founder of ANZUS or, or did it start earlier with Prime Minister John Curtin? or even Curtin's successor, Ben Chifley, and his external affairs minister, Doc Evatt. Um, I mean, I always say that success has a, fa- a thousand fathers and failure none. So, of course, I'm sure they would all like to claim uh, claim parenthood, paternity rights. But um, I'd love to hear your views on the, the founding of ANZUS and, and particularly from the Labor Party's uh, storytelling and, and the way the ANZUS story is told when it comes to the history of Labor leaders like John Curtin and Ben Chifley?
1: It's it's an important uh, political and even cultural question, Georgina, in the sense that ANZUS needs to be seen in its foundation and in its current application, its current commemoration at uh, 70, as a bipartisan uh, initiative from very early times. And we can look back beyond uh, uh, John Curtin in the wartime period at the end of 1941, when he, he writes an article for a Melbourne paper, which essentially says Australia is looking to America for uh, support and assistance during the war as the, the Japanese military uh, approaches our shores. We can look right back to the Great White Fleet of 1908 or the subsequent US naval visit of 19. 19- 25 as being a couple of the foundation stones. The the key element in what occurred and which led to the signing of the ANSIS Treaty under Prime Minister Menzies in 1951 is essentially a turning away from Britain and the Empire and towards America for the maintenance of of peace and security in the Pacific, as we now call it, uh, the Indo-Pacific. I think that's the key element. Both major parties can claim a degree of ownership of ANZUS, Curtin for the relationship that he built uh, with the Americans, including Douglas MacArthur during the war, uh, and Menzies with the active initiatives of, uh, of External Affairs Minister Spender in terms of formalising that uh, relationship in the ANZUS uh, Treaty, which led to the peace treaty with Japan, and caused there to be created a sheet anchor for Australian foreign and defence policy for the last seven decades. So it's it's a bipartisan initiative, as is seen, I think, by cool heads on both sides of the aisle in Australian politics and indeed in the US.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's... And that's so important to the longevity and success of ANZUS, of course, is that bipartisan commitment to it. I wonder, too, if we could explore the differences between John Curtin and Robert Menzies, two wartime leaders for Australia, Menzies 39 to 41 and, of course, John Curtin um, 41 to his his death in 45. Menzies was an Anglophile. He said he was British to his bootstraps. Um, He had a, a deep affection for Britain. He was a realist, though. He recognised the importance of the relationship with the United States because of the potential for the security protection that that relationship afforded. And as he he put so well, Britain was no longer able to afford that protection and security support to Australia And the fall of Singapore, of course. In 1942 it was really Australia's Dunkirk moment and, and a huge blow to British prestige in the region and, and a huge letdown to Australia Curtin, who was Prime Minister at the time. He said it was an inexcusable betrayal of Australia by Britain. He Curtin was very clear in that in that article you spoke about that he wrote in the Melbourne newspaper that Australia was looking to America and it was free of any pangs of our traditional links or kinship with the United Kingdom. Whereas I think Menzies continued to have those feelings of traditional links and kinship while at the same time pursuing ANZUS in 1951. And uh, I think it's interesting to see as well the evolution of the American thinking in this regard, watching Australia, where you have a leader like Curtin saying we're free of the pangs of traditional links or kinship, and then a leader like Menzies who says British to, to your bootstraps. I mean, at, at first Roosevelt said he thought it sniffed of disloyalty when Curtin was saying we're, free, we're looking to America, but then eventually Truman comes around and, uh, and recognises the value, the value, whether it's uh, a value um, in the answers of, of American interests or, or, or of the shared values of the two countries. There was a real change in thinking, wasn't there?
1: Uh, there was because the, uh, uh, the Pacific War, Uh, after Japan entered with the attack upon uh, the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbour, became an existential threat to Australia. There is, in all probability, no Japanese determination or plan to invade Australia. But there's no question that the Japanese wanted to sever the lifelines that Australia had to Britain and uh, then subsequently to the United States. The war that uh, uh, Menzies confronted between thirty-nine and forty-one was definitely an existential war for Britain, but not for Australia. It was being fought on the other side of the, the world, in the Atlantic, uh, in the, the skies over Europe, in the, the Mediterranean and North Africa and the, uh, the Middle East. And Australia was heavily committed. Our, uh, uh, our Navy was there we were uh, training hundreds and hundreds of pilots and aircrew for the RAF and for the RAAF, And the, the crack Australian uh, divisions were in the Middle East and in North uh, Africa, the 6th and the 7th and the 9th, the 6th having been particularly badly mauled in, in Greece and Crete. Curtin as Prime Minister has to confront the possibility of a, a Japanese invasion. The European empires in this part of the world, the French, the Dutch, the British are either being uh, subsumed or destroyed. The uh, American protectorate in the Philippines is under a Japanese occupation as of May. And indeed, uh, prior to the Coral Sea, the war in the Pacific is in doubt. Uh, The combined US and Australian forces check the Japanese in the Coral Sea. It's an important strategic defeat. The Australians then throw the Japanese back at, uh, at Milne Bay, the Americans at Guadalcanal, and, of course, Midway sees the turning of the tide. Now, now, Curtin was a person who regarded Australians as being a British stock, but he was very realistic in the threat to Australia and in the need to, to move, move towards America and to work out a wartime relationship. And for the first two years of the Pacific War, uh, as Kim Beasley's fond of pointing out, Douglas MacArthur had more Australians under his command in the southwest Pacific than he did forces from the United States, though so they grew uh, uh, dramatically. So you, you had uh, essentially two halves uh, of the, the Second World War, the war being fought in uh, Europe, to which Australia was committed in support of the UK and, and the other Western allies, uh, uh, the Canadians, New Zealanders, and, and, and so on, and eventually the US, and the Pacific War, which overwhelmingly was being fought by the US, supported by allies uh, such as Australia, who had Jung's China and so on, and the, and the Brits in, in Burma. Different uh, wars, different demands, and a determination on Curtin's part, as with the recall of Australian troops from the, uh, uh, at the Middle East Uh, at the uh, end of 1941, early 1942, in defiance of Churchill's demands that they stay. Uh, People have pointed out that had um, Curtin not resisted Churchill's overtures, and at one point uh, you'll be aware uh, Churchill diverted the convoy in the Indian Ocean, bringing Australian troops back to Rangoon, which would have meant they'd simply be locked up in Japanese POW camps for the duration of the war, just like the 8th Division in, in Singapore or the Japanese uh, uh, success in Java meant Australians, they're going into, into POW uh, uh, cages. Circumstances where Australia decided our a priority is at home in, uh, in defence of, uh, of our own country and we'll do it with the Americans. Now, you're quite right, FDR uh, viewed Australia as part of the British Empire and he was taken aback and displeased by Curtin's appeal. He offered to send American National Guard divisions to Australia to replace the troops of the second uh, AIF. Curtin said no, and, and the, the measure of Curtin's determination is reflected in that reality, that he said no to the two Western uh, primary wartime leaders in, uh, in FDR and, and Winston Churchill and argued Australian values. So I think that's the shift that occurs um, uh, after 1942 through to 1945, and it carries
0: over uh, into ANZUS. As you said, Stephen, though Curtin saw this as a, a an existential issue, shifting from the Britain to the US, um, and uh, and obviously wanting to defend Australian territory, which was of course fundamental, fundamental to his job and fundamental to Australia's interests. But Douglas MacArthur, who became the Commander-in-Chief of Allied Forces in the Southwest Pacific. He, he ended up commanding Australian troops. Australia did not command its own troops. It was controversial at the time. I know there was debate over whether Curtin was, was actually doing the right thing. He was the saviour of Australian sovereignty, or was he, was he surrender of Australia, sorry, or was he surrendering Australian sovereignty by by giving over troops to, to um, the command of, of MacArthur? And where MacArthur came in, I mean, he was obviously a controversial figure in his own right. He he didn't necessarily look at Australia as a, an equal partner with shared values. He he is quoted as saying he saw Australia as a convenient piece of real estate and not a long-term strategic partner. In fact, it was, he didn't think that the fact that we were of the same, same race or held similar democratic values was enough. Um, it was just that we... Happened to be located in a in a part of the Pacific that he needed, and he used that to his obvious obvious advantage in the end. But um, and certainly, those sort of sentiments don't exactly feed into a sense that ANZUS was forged in a kind of fervor of um, enthusiasm for shared values. Of uh, you know, these days we talk about ANZUS in terms of shared values of democracy, of freedom, of um, rule of law, but the way MacArthur was engaging with Curtin, it, it seems like it was real politic or, uh, or nothing.
1: Oh, oh, very much so. And I, I think the, the best way to describe Curtin signing over of Australian forces to uh, MacArthur's command is uh, to acknowledge reality. And Curtin was to do that several times during the war with uh, very considerable success. For example, he was confronted by the Americans with the, uh, uh, the, the self-evident argument that American conscripts are dying in the Pacific fighting the Japanese. Australian conscripts should be called up to fight, in, uh, at least in this area of the world. So Curtin faced down the ALP, which, of course, had split bitterly in 1916, 1917, over Billy Hughes' conscription uh, uh, demands. Curtin faces down the ALP and conscription is introduced for the Southwest Pacific and and new divisions are uh, are formed to fight. So Curtin is very much a realist in terms of the relationship with MacArthur, who did see Australia as a base, a base for operations against Imperial uh, uh, Japan. And the Americans are very sceptical in all parts of the world about the post-war period, will the empires be uh, uh, simply revived? FDR in Tehran tells Stalin, for example, in 1943, the conference there, he thought that the British Empire in India ought to be brought to an end, without telling Churchill. Quite uh, uh, quite extraordinary. So you have a a circumstance in which we are fighting a war, the determination is to defeat the Japanese. Curtin doesn't uh, uh, have... The luxury of, of saying we will hammer out an agreement uh, here. He's obliged to defend Australian soil. He has American uh, forces that are, are growing almost weekly in 1942 to turn the tide. And he acknowledges the reality of uh, the US preponderance of, of, of power and wealth. And that works during the war. MacArthur uh, doesn't take Australian troops with him. To the Philippines and other campaigns, he didn't have a particularly high regard for Australian uh, uh, forces. I've never quite understood uh, that. He takes certain Australian units that are specialists with him like codebreakers, but he doesn't take Australian infantry. He res- relies o- almost exclusively up, upon US forces. Nonetheless, so I think this is an important point, Georgina. Where the uh, uh, the bonds are really built uh, between Australians and Americans, uh, in, in the field, uh, in combat, where Australian uh, troops are seen by US troops as being the equivalent of Marines. The, that, that's the American assessment of them and the manner in which they uh, they fight. And out of those wartime links, I think, certain bonds under, uh, underline uh, values. And the experience of Americans in wartime Australia is is overwhelmingly positive. So I think that's an important cultural foundation for what happens in 1951 and, and indeed, to this day. Well,
0: uh, absolutely. I wanted to pick up on your point about um, Curtin being very much a realist when it came to the relationship with the United States. And, uh, of course, he he unfortunately dies shortly after World War II and is um, succeeded by Ben Chifley. Uh, ben the Minister for External Affairs, was Doc Evatt, um, who is, has his own own legacy, um, particularly the United Nations. Uh, but but how did that how did that relationship of Chifley and Evatt, Evatt, who is absolutely an idealist, uh, an internationalist, real believer in global government, and a, a skeptic of U.S. power and um, hegemony. Hegem- how, how did that impact those, those later post-war years, pre Menzies taking government in 1949, in the sort of lead-up to, to an alliance?
1: The, the, the British were still very influential in Australian strategic thinking after the war, even though there's no question that a, a decisive shift had taken place in Australian security policy. For example, it's the Attlee government rather than the US that persuades the Australian government under Ben Chifley to form ASIO, And the Australian uh, intelligence services are largely based on the the British models. They work reasonably uh, effectively, and it just shows the continuation of, of British thinking. ANZUS is very important because Britain is not involved, and that's really the first major international treaty in which the Brits don't play a role, have a presence in terms of Australian thinking. Dr. Everett was a brilliant jurist and he thought in terms of international law in much the same way as Woodrow Wilson and other idealists had seen the League of Nations at the end of the First World War. He thought in terms of international agreements being the the, the future cement that held international relations together and led us away from a conflict and uh, The the world was exhausted after 1945. The horrors of the Great War uh, were were established. The horrors of the Second World War took some time uh, to emerge, but uh, uh, truly appalling circumstances in this part of the world, particularly in countries like China, as there were appalling circumstances in, uh, in Europe. So there was a lot of faith put in the United Nations. And, of course, it's put to the test in Korea, but it's the application of American power in Korea, in the defence of the Republic of Korea against communist aggression, that means that the day is won. Now, Minister Spender sees that like Curtin in very hard-headed terms, and he looks to forming uh, a a military alliance uh, with the United States, a security relationship uh, which is codified in a treaty. And bear in mind, NATO is signed in uh, 1949 for the defence of uh, Western Europe and, uh, and the US and Canada against Soviet aggression. So there's, a, there's an example uh, in place. So the Americans are not particularly keen to extend their uh, security obligations to this part of the world. But with the growth of Soviet power, with the, the Soviet atomic bomb, With uh, China falling uh, to Mao in 1949, there is an obvious need to bring Japan back into the uh, Western orbit, which, which of course, she'd been during the First World War. Bring Japan back in that requires a peace treaty, and from the point of view of Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S., the way forward: sign the Japanese peace treaty and negotiate ANZUS, so there is a security guarantee in the Pacific.
0: And then fast forward to. 1957 and in fact um, the 27th of August 1957 so we're recording this on the 26th of August uh, so it's tomorrow for us it's the anniversary of the of the great labor split or one of the great labor splits but a but a split of course that that delivers Menzies. we
1: have had several during so you can I was pick just any <laughs> and find a split
0: <laughs> this, this particular one um, divergence of opinion over the communism Uh, And, of course, the Democratic Labor Party is formed and on DLP preferences, Menzies is delivered victory on several occasions. And these anti-communist and communist sentiments within the, the Labor movement, how did they affect that sense of bipartisanship on the alliance, do you think?
1: I think it became harder to maintain a bipartisan approach uh, over, over the years beyond the split, but maintained it uh, It was. Now, uh, 1954 through to 1957, the ALP splits. Uh, a lot of it is industrial in terms of its origin. The, the uh, endeavour by the, uh, the Communist Party of Australia acting at the Kremlin's insistence from 1949 with the Great Coal Strike right through the uh, 50s, to take power industrially and to convert that into uh, into political power, the industrial groups are formed uh, partly in uh, response. The leadership of Dr. Evert is most unfortunate at this time. And Freddie Daly once described him uh, to me as worse than demented by the uh, by the end of the uh, the leadership, worse than uh, uh, demented. So you have a uh, very poor a leadership in the federal parliamentary uh, Labour Party, an aggressive uh, a communist party in the uh, in the factories and in the mines, and you have uh, very determined opposition in the uh, in the industrial groups. It comes to a head by 1957. It becomes uh, an argument over power in the Queensland ALP between Vince Gir and the parliamentary Labour Party and the uh, and affiliated unions. And one of the issues that continuously crops up is, of course, relations uh, uh, with the communist world. Don't forget, in 1956, there is the brutal uh, suppression of of independence in Hungary by the the Soviets. Uh, You have the Petrov affair in Australia. You have all these kinds of flashpoints. Now, to an extent this spills over, into relations uh, uh, with the US as codified in ANZUS. But I would argue that where Menzies is concerned, uh, his last great effort in imperial loyalty is over, uh, over the Suez uh, crisis and his attempt uh, to portray Britain and, and its allies, France and uh, Israel, in a favorable light in terms of his assessment, which is really taken apart. By Prime Minister Nehru of, uh, of India. After that, I think we see the Australian government looking more and more to this part of the world. We have uh, confrontasi with uh, with Indonesia, decolonization in, uh, in in West New Guinea, and then, of course, the Vietnam War uh, begins to become a central issue in our politics as well as in us politics so again realism takes hold and in that sense ANZUS comes back to the fore i know with vietnam it was CETO, the treaty that was invoked but at the core is ANZUS, the relationship with the united states as the uh, as the sheet anchor of australian security
0: yes uh, absolutely and um you know that brings me to to my next question which is about when has ANZUS really felt under strain um, Confrontasi is an extraordinary set of circumstances in terms of ANZUS. It's said that that JFK, US President at the time, John Kennedy, um, when when there were discussions about whether the United States might come to Australia's aid if if things got a little bit nasty between Australia and Indonesia, Australia going over to Malaya to support a former British colony in some preserving territorial integrity in the face of guerrilla groups coming over from Indonesia. JFK has said to have said, well, ANZUS won't be part of this and uh, don't expect us to come and support Australia if you are under attack from Indonesia. The US being very concerned about its commercial interests in Indonesia. Menzies on reflection in in his memoirs in Afternoon Light. He actually he he doesn't make much of that of that um, of that issue, uh, I think others make a lot of that as a as a disappointment of of Anzus as a strained moment in Anzus. But Menzies pictures it really as a it was a Commonwealth issue. Uh, Australia was acting in support of Malaya as a as, a, as part of the British Commonwealth, and uh, and it was appropriate that the United States would not come involved in in Commonwealth issues. Um, I think that's a very generous interpretation from Menzies. And of course, with hindsight, you can, you can twist and turn tails as as, as, uh, as you like to suit to suit whatever uh, argument you want to put up. But um, there, were other, there were other strains, weren't there, Stephen? There were obviously, Suez, I mean, Australia um, very much took, took the side of, of Britain and uh, the United States opposed the Australian and British approach there. Vietnam initially. A moment popular move on behalf of Menzies to put in troops into Vietnam but eventually became incredibly unpopular on university campuses across Australia and the United States and then even in 1999 in Timor you see Australia asking for support from the United States initially rebuffed eventually the United States provided logistical support there but but it's not Always straightforward, Anzus. Our, our interests and U.S. interests don't always necessarily align as closely as we might hope.
1: Uh, overwhelmingly, they do. But you're right. From time to time, there are uh, uh, there are strains. Let's just have a look at those two uh, episodes. Jack Kennedy was very much a, a decolonizer. He even saw uh, Egypt's president Nasser as being a nationalist, and the British SAS had to conceal from the americans their uh, war against the egyptian troops in yemen in the uh, in the early 1960s because of the kennedy uh, administration's uh, approach on the other side of the coin then secretary of state dean rusk made it very clear to the uh, indonesians that if they developed a shooting war in borneo inevitably the us would be involved in support of its australian uh, uh, allies. Uh, Dean Rusk has said that publicly. He said that uh, privately at the time, and indeed at ANZUS uh, uh, treaty conferences, he certainly made that uh, uh, clear. You you mentioned uh, East Timor. This is an important one, I think, but I'll, I'll refer to a story that your dad told me uh, about uh, the American decision uh, not to become involved in support of the Australian uh intervention in, in East Timor, that he did an interview with uh, with television, and it may have been BBC or ABC or even CNN, which Madeleine Albright saw while travelling in Vietnam, and I think she was in Hanoi. And she was the US Secretary of State at the time. She called uh, Foreign Minister Downer to say what on earth is going on, and he explained that the message from Washington was expect no US support. To which she said, well, leave it with me. And she talked with President Clinton, who then determined that the US would step up. And lo and behold, the USS Guadalcanal arrives in the waters off East East Timor with a a fully equipped US Marine battalion. Did nothing. Didn't have to do anything. Just established the presence in the waters off East Timor. And Bill Cohen, from memory, Defence Secretary at the time, carried the message. To Jakarta, So, yes, there have been strains, but could I point out to you that the strains have, have sometimes been internal as well in our domestic politics. Now, when the Longhi Labor government in New Zealand effectively broke the trilateralism of ANZUS, which has never been restored and, frankly, is in Australia's interest not to have restored, uh, when the Longhi government uh, uh, broke the trilateralism of, of ANZUS over uh, US naval visits, whether or not the US warships were nuclear armed or or nuclear powered, they developed a, a sentiment inside the left of the ALP that New Zealand was our closest and most trusted ally and we should go with them. We too should walk away from Ensis, And I remember the conferences of the federal ALP, particularly in Hobart, 1986, 1988 and uh, into the 90s where ANZUS was debated at length and where people like Kim Beasley and, uh, and, and Bill Hayden and others, and I'm happy to have played a very modest role in that, defended uh, ANZUS as one of our really serious international uh, obligations and, and saw off the isolationism of some in the ALP who wanted to go down the New Zealand path. So, yes, there have been strains. There have been strains over the joint facilities, for example, but ANZUS has endured. Could I make this point? Please, Georgiana, there's American research on, on this. And from memory, there's Australian research too on the longevity of ANZUS in that uh, most international treaties don't last very long. They might last a decade or so. The expiry period is normally about 40 years. ANZUS is 70 years young and is about to be celebrated. That says something uh, about the two countries and about our common values as well as our common interests. And I think it's important to note that.
0: Oh, I know absolutely, Stephen. And you know, earlier you spoke about another treaty that was invoked, uh, Australia and the United States were party to CETO, Southeast Asian Treaty Organization that was sort of a, a Southeast Asian version of NATO for the non-communist states. Uh, that that's that's disappeared. That uh that that sort of expired naturally after uh European partners in that really sort of lost lost the interest in in the treaty, but but, but ANZUS, ANZUS survives despite the strains, despite New Zealand's departure in in the eighties, and uh, and despite occasional domestic debates about its uh, about its its importance or it's um, you know, it's it's continuing appropriateness for Australia or or within the United States, less so I guess, but appropriateness for Australia to be party to it. I mean, even the presidency of Donald Trump gave rise to to domestic debates in Australia because of um the personality of the president and, and the mainstream commentators at the time in Australia, of course, said well, is is way more than The personality of one president It is a joining together of two countries with shared values and commitment to to freedom and and democracy and, of course, the upholding of peace and security in our region that delivers prosperity.
1: Absolutely right. I recall President uh, George W. Bush uh, speaking to the joint session of the Australian Parliament during the presidential visit, and he paid an an extraordinary compliment to Australian uh, military forces. In the sense that he said, oh, when Americans are in a firefight and uh, uh, American troops are in a trench and they look around and they don't see Australians, all that means is the Australians are up ahead. And I thought, oh, what a generous thing to say. And you, you, have, to, you have these relationships that, uh, uh, that form between presidents of the United States and Australian uh, uh, prime ministers that are very important, and uh, I mean, Harold Holt and and Lyndon Johnson, for example, through uh, Bob Hawke and uh, uh, George H. W. Bush, John Howard and uh, and, and George Bush 43, these are very important in terms of building trust. And uh, knowing that Bob uh, Zelig once uh, said at a a conference I was uh, uh, was, uh, privileged to be a delegate to, that during his time at the World Bank, he always liked having the Australians there because they always had his back. And some US allies were not as sympathetically disposed. So I think that sensation in Washington and in Canberra works, uh, works for both countries.
0: Yeah, and I think the simplicity of ANZUS as opposed to, to NATO and the bureaucracy that sits under, under that means that it, it's so important to have the leader-to-leader level relationship and so much can be delivered not just on a security um in a security sense but economically culturally diplomatically if you have that leader to leader closeness that we've, we've seen over successive presidents and perhaps that's less so with donald trump but uh, let's hope biden and scott morrison can form a Form a, a close relationship once they can properly get together on a more regular basis, once we pass this COVID pandemic and all the travel restrictions it imposes on us. I wanted to um, ask you about the future of answers. how you see it. We are once again going into a world that is where power is contested, where US preeminence is contested. We have been in a unipolar moment for, for a while and then the rise of China is really challenging that. And, of course, the rise of China and its changing engagement with the world under Xi Jinping as president of of China um, means Australia is feeling the brunt of a risen China more so than many other countries given our commitment to to standing up for our values and our interests, um, particularly when it came to the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. But also that that we we want to see the the status quo in our region upheld. We want freedom of navigation in waters that 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 are close to our to our territory and that we have an interest in our trade and goods flowing through. Answers could be tested again. Uh, we have issues over Taiwan that China wants to. Take back into its um, sovereign territory uh, that that could put ANZUS to the test. We we have, of course, what's unfolding in Afghanistan being for, for many a great disappointment. When the, the one time when ANZUS has been invoked was after 9/11, and John Howard said, well, "You know, Australia's got your back, America." When American soil there was an attack on American soil, and thousands of Americans lost their lives in the 9/11 attack. 20 years later, this withdrawal from Afghanistan by American troops is um, is causing a lot of Australians great distress and questions about the impact of that on in terms of US power and the is this a moment for revisionist powers like China and Russia to move in? With all those thoughts, Stephen, where do you see the future of ANZUS in the next 70 years?
1: I think it's important to commemorate the 70th anniversary and to look absolutely forward as to how we build upon the ANZUS relationship in the uh, the Indo-Pacific, well beyond what originally was uh, created to serve. You mentioned Afghanistan, the withdrawal is a debacle, but what's also been appalling for the last 20 years is there's been no overarching strategy to win a war against the uh, uh, the Taliban. That's a separate podcast, I fear, uh, Georgina. The, the debacle that we see on the, the global news services each day shakes uh, America's allies. There's no question about that. It even causes a tremor uh, amongst the Germans in Taiwan. Uh, the, uh, the president talks in terms of, of greater self-reliance. We're in a second Cold War. I don't think there's any way around that. We have been for some time and I'm amused sometimes when people try and pretend it's, it's otherwise. If you look at the military and, and security challenges, if you look at the ideological challenges, if you look at the economic and cultural challenges, the PRC poses a far greater challenge than the Soviet Union ever did. Now, China, I don't accept the inevitability of communist Chinese triumph in every corner of the world this uh, endless line that emerges from the Global Times and, and from Beijing. Is Chinese foreign policy uniformly successful? No. The contrary is the case. When you have arguments with Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, the Philippines, Indonesia, Australia, when you have a constant battle with the United States, when you have arguments with Scandinavia, and and other parts of Europe, including the Germans, your foreign policy isn't actually actually exemplary. Now, a Chinese strategic thinker said to me at at an exchange conference in Beijing some years ago, you must remember, Stephen, Chinese foreign policy always reflects our domestic reality. That's a telling point. Now, the same is true of, of most countries, but particularly in an authoritarian system like China, the domestic constituency has to be convinced of certain uh, uh, elements externally. So if you're having an argument within, uh, with India again about the border and the, the Himalayas and, and people are in direct confrontation, that has to explain to your domestic constituency that you've got pressures on from outside just about everywhere. But arguing with all your neighbours simultaneously, I don't see the, uh, the, the value in that on behalf of China or anyone else. And there are tensions, the East China Sea and the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea and and beyond. We need to be equipped to deal with those, not only in a a military and security sense, in a diplomatic sense. One of the areas where I think ANZUS can lend its foundation stones to an improvement in relations with the Americans is for there to be regular discussions on strategic economic security for the US and, uh, and for Australia in terms of supply chain, uh, for example, in, in terms of, uh, of markets. The, uh, uh, the Chinese have really brought pressure uh, upon Australia, about $20 billion worth of, uh, of imposts upon our uh, exporters. About half of that we've been able to uh, replace and over time, I'm sure we will diversify further. But we should also look to seeing where our supply chains complement and improve American uh, uh, industry, American uh, technology, Western industry, Western technology and and other countries and particularly the ASEAN countries. I think we need to do more in terms of our economic security and discussions with our uh, uh, American friends can really be, I think, a touchstone of reference in that.
0: Well, Stephen, I feel like we have definitely another couple of podcasts ahead of us. There's so much to unpack there. I would make, as a former Australian diplomat, I was posted in Japan for four years, but I certainly came across a lot of Chinese diplomats there. And, of course, the aside from the US relationship, the other, the Probably the most important relationship for Japan is is China. So uh, every every day you're facing issues between Japan and China and how that plays out economically, socially, politically, strategically. But what I would say is in China, the government will never never reward you for failure, but uh, encourages a lot of overreach from its diplomats and spokespeople and protagonists and that's what we've seen. I think with Chinese diplomacy over the last eighteen months, there has been a lot of overreach with wolf warrior diplomacy. With with uh, measures taken against uh, taken against countries like Australia, and, and listed so many countries that have felt the brunt of China. And I think sometimes in Australia we 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 think it's all about us and China. When actually, when having lived in Japan through the rare earths the rare earths embargo that China placed on on Japan there are plenty of other countries that face the face the wrath of uh china and and of course like you said it's 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 a much more significant um player uh in a in a contemporary sense than than the ussr was during the cold war because of its economic might uh militarily ussr was significant but but, and China is obviously incredibly significant, but it's that economic power and, and interdependence that it's created and the, and the links and chains it's creating through its Belt and Road initiative that make it a uh, much more formidable opponent, for want of a better word, into the, to the next um, next decade and beyond and something that will we'll test answers and, and other alliances um, with those who um, believe in a free world. Stephen, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you um, on the 70th anniversary of Anders. I know it's a busy time for you. You're so deeply invested in the Alliance and you're, you're a person who will be in very much high demand um, over the next few days. But I really, really appreciate it, the time you've given the Robert Menzies Institute on our podcast afternoon, Mike.
1: It's my absolute pleasure, Georgina, and stay safe and may the Institute flourish.
0: The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about our podcast and, of course, the institute at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter at rmenziesinst and on LinkedIn. Thank you very much for joining us this week and we hope you can join us next week for another fantastic discussion on the life and legacy of Sir Robert Menzies.